0: Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. This episode is sponsored by the rural municipality of Wallace Woodworth. Now I'm going to be going through the history of this rural area, and it's a really interesting one. And as usual, I won't go through the chronological history, but instead, I'm going to be touching on various things from its history. So I hope you really enjoy it. Indigenous and Early History The first people to live in the area are believed to be the Assiniboine and Stony people, who came from the area of Minnesota and the Dakotas. Most often, they would follow the bison herds that moved through the area in huge numbers for centuries before the arrival of Europeans. The Cree also occupied the area, originating from the Lake Superior area and moving out west as the trading and territory dynamics began to change with the arrival of Europeans in eastern Canada and the immense impact of the Hudson's Bay Company. As traders came into the area, they would intermingle with the indigenous tribes, helping to form a new nation of indigenous called the Métis. The Métis, of course, would go on to have a huge impact on Manitoba itself. It is believed the first European to come to what would be Wallace Woodworth was a man named Henry Kelsey. He would describe the huge bison herds that moved through the area and the grizzly bears that were once found there. He traveled through between 1690 and 1691 with the goal of finding more indigenous to trade with for the Hudson's Bay Company. For a century, the Hudson's Bay Company was the only source of Europeans to the area, but that would change in 1794 when the Northwest Company built a fort near where Gopher Creek enters the Assiniboine River. The fort, called Fort Montenay à la Boss, would later just be shortened to Boss Hill, and it is the only known fur-trading fort within the Woodworth area. Daniel Harmon would visit the fort in 1804 and described it as such. The fort is well-built and beautifully situated on the high bank of the Red River overlooking the country, a perfect plain and great buffalo country. Interestingly enough, the Wallace-Woodworth area would not be part of Manitoba when it was created, in 1870, but rather in 1873 when the borders of the province expanded. The Early Settlers to the Area With the arrival of the railroad, the settlement of the area quickly began and many new immigrants from eastern Canada and Europe were coming to the area that would be Wallace-Woodworth, seeking a better life. For many, they were able to find that life. As those settlers came in, there were no roads to speak of. The first travelers would take a direct line to wherever they were going, avoiding the sloughs, dips, rises, and bluffs. Others would follow a distinct trail as it began to appear. For some lucky individuals, they would follow the wagon ruts that had gone before them. One of the earliest settlers to the area was a man by the name of George Bridge, who had come to Ontario from England at the age of 12. In 1879, he came out to the area and filed a homestead, then walked back to portage la prairie to work at a gravel pit for the CPR. In 1881, his wife Sarah Ann and his two-year-old son Mel joined him, traveling by oxen wagon from Rapid City. With their arrival, he would build a small log house, but he didn't have any nails, so he would use wooden pins and holes in the wood to make their home. The family took their first wheat crop to Brandon by oxen, and the couple would be highly active in the area for decades until their deaths in the 1930s. As more settlers began to arrive from eastern Canada and the United Kingdom, the people of the area began to band together to form a community. The Canadian Pacific Railway reached the area in 1882 on its push west to the Pacific, and John McLeod, one of the first settlers in the district, was appointed postmaster. That post office would open on December 1, 1883. Elkhorn, at the same time, served a very important purpose along the rail line, and it was a stopping point for all trains to take on coal and water. There were two coal docks during those early years, employing as many as 12 people in the winter. The wheat coming from the area was also of the highest quality, even taking the gold medal at a competition in London, England in 1892. Another early settler was Richard Coombs Beamish, who came out to the area around the same time as George Bridge. He would file a homestead but sadly died in 1884 after he contracted typhoid fever. I include that to show that it was often very hard for the people who came to the area, and there were many challenges but many succeeded and their families continue to live in the area to this day in 1885 as more children moved to the area the first school was opened the population quickly grew and before long the school was too small to continue serving in that purpose it was sold in 1892 and became a residence that still stands to this day in its place a larger school was built in 1895 and since then, all subsequent schools for the community have been built on that land. As time went on, the community of Elkhorn began to grow, and in 1899, the first Board of Trade was organized, followed by the Fire Brigade. In 1905, the community had two general stores, a lumberyard, a drugstore, two large hotels, a bank, four implement agencies, two butcher shops, a weekly newspaper, two tailor shops, and much more, including three churches and a flour mill that produced 150 barrels a day. Not surprisingly, in 1906, the village of Elkhorn was incorporated. The rural municipality of Wallace would be formed on December 22, 1883, eventually having the communities of Hargrave, Kirkella, Cola, and Two Creeks in it. The second reeve of the RM, James Frame, would go on to serve as the MLA in the legislature from 1892 to 1895. Prior to his arrival in the area, he served in the Collingwood Company during the American Civil War, protecting the border from the raids. The third reeve of the community, Watson Montgomery Crosby, also served in the legislature from 1893 to 1896. As for Woodworth, it was incorporated on December 22, 1883. On January 1, 2015, an amalgamation between the R.M. of Wallace, the R.M. of Woodworth, and the village of Alcorn would occur, It's believed that Woodworth was named for Joseph E. Woodworth, who was a conservative candidate in the provincial election in the area. In the 1890s, the community of Harding would grow, and with the arrival of the railroad, it played an important role in providing a place for workers to stay. In 1900, the crew that was handling the ravine grading had a tent camp in the community, and they were tasked with building five timber bridges. The first Harding station was nothing more than a boxcar and a freight shed, but one would eventually be built in 1919 at a cost of $4,400 but it was used until 1964 when it was torn down and while the community is smaller today at one time it did boast several stores elevators and even tennis courts it also boasts something that is a pretty big deal in the area but i'm going to get to that later over the years the area has been a stopping point for dignitaries in 1922 Governor-General Lord Bing and his wife Lady Bing would come to the community for a visit. And schools have always been important, and several were built in Wallace and Woodworth during the 1880s, as the population grew. Ralfton, Anwath, Educational Point, Ryerson, Brettelbane were all schools built in 1884, followed by Hagyard, Kinsmore in 1885, Galt in 1890, and Erol in 1892. The 1942 Plane Crash I always like to find unique stories from a town's history, and there is a great one from the area in 1942, when two Avro Anson training planes were unable to land at a nearby River's Air Force base because of fog. After wandering around for a while, the planes were getting low on fuel, and it was decided that the four crew members of the planes would jump. A flare was thrown out, and the crews leapt from their planes. The first crew member landed near Fred Bowles Farm while two more fell near Jack Thompson's farm, and the fourth landed in an oak tree. The first three were able to get help at the farms, but the pilot in the tree had sprained his ankle when he fell out of the harness. He would wander through the night, coming across two abandoned farmhouses, until he was found at 9am in the morning. As for the plane, one engine flew off and landed on the railroad track, and the rest crashed near a rural school. The Manitoba Antique Automobile Museum As I have mentioned before, every community in the prairies has its own little flair when it comes to a local museum. One of the best museums for anyone who loves the history of automobiles is the Manitoba Antique Automobile Museum, located in Elkhorn. The museum is not just cars from the past 50 years, but some of the earliest cars to ever be put on the road in Manitoba. Included in the collection, you will find farm equipment, steam tractors, and unique artifacts from households of pioneers. Also included are automobiles that date back over a century, including a 1904 Holzman, a 1909 Metz, and a 1914 Besco, along with a 1918 Grey Dort. All of this is thanks to a man by the name of Isaac Clarkson who had a dream beginning as a child to have a collection of cars to display so that future generations could see the vehicles that changed Manitoba and its landscape. Beginning back in 1946, Clarkson worked on a farm near to where the museum is today, and it is there that the museum itself started. Successful as a farmer, Clarkson one day located a 1909 Humpmobile two-passenger roadster in a very sad state. It was one of the first cars built by the Hupp Motor Car Company and if restored it would be one of the oldest of its kind in existence. From here he began collecting cars in about a 300 kilometer radius of his home traveling thousands of kilometers to find the early makes and models that were once prized vehicles on the road. At first the cars were stored at a nearby farm owned by Marguerite Ablett where Clarkson worked on a shared basis. By this time he had reached 60 cars and he offered the collection to the village of Elkhorn, who quickly took him up on the idea. The museum would open in 1967, and Clarkson would continue working on old cars until he passed away in 1971. After his death, Ablett would turn over the entire estate to the museum, and she is now seen as the co-founder of the museum. Today at the museum, you will find dozens of cars through all the decades from the early 1900s all the way up to the 1960s. For anyone who loves cars this is a place to visit. Here's Reeve Clayton Canart.
1: Yeah well, we're very fortunate uh, the community of Elkhorn has the uh, Manitoba Antique Automobile Museum and that museum was actually started by a local farmer um, they call him Ike Clarkson and he always had a boyhood dream I guess of uh, being able to collect and display vehicles for future generations and so you know, it, it all got started for him in uh, 1946. He restored a 1909, what was called a humpmobile, and that was the the start for him for, you know, for collecting and restoring. And and from there, it just kept growing. And in uh, 1967, uh, his collection he donated it to the to the village of Elkhorn and and the museum. You know, at that point was opened. You know, it's the not so hidden gem, I guess, uh, that's there. But um, it's worth the stop for everyone and. Um, know he continued to work on the cars himself until his passing in 1971 he was only 58 at the time and today there's more than 120 cars um, from over a century in the collection so you know as well as cars there's many other historical items to take in there's a there's an old schoolhouse there to to tour through and uh, they moved in an old farmhouse as well at one point that you can tour through that has you know items items throughout and recently, actually the Restoration Club just moved in the old um, St. Mark's Church from, from Kirkella just, just down the highway. They moved it in and they're gonna kind of fix it up and they'll be there for display as well. Um, you know, we're very fortunate with the museum. It's ran by a museum board. And there's also a Restoration Club that uh, they work together to bring in new items and restore what's there. And uh, they work very hard every year together to uh, put on the Canada Day Parade that's always, always well known in the area and, and such a success. Um, we were museum was actually a beneficiary this year of some funding from the uh, manitoba 150 funding and through the regional arts council <clears throat> we were able to have uh, a mural actually painted uh, across the, the whole front of the museum and it's resembles the front of an old car and and there was a couple of actual local artists who did it and they did a fantastic job it just suits the building so well and certainly will uh, will catch your catch your eye on the way by
0: The Harding Fair For most communities, agricultural fairs were a common annual tradition a century ago. Not only was it a time to show off the livestock of the area, but families would come out for sporting competitions, dinners, dancing, and much more. It was the chance to be able to meet with friends and have some fun during the busy summer farming season. The problem is, many of those fairs slowly faded away and only a few communities host fairs anymore. One of those communities is Harding, located in the RM. The origins of the fair dates back to a plowing match held by the Landowner Electoral Division Farmers Institute. Thompson Jasper then encouraged others to learn to judge livestock by organizing a competition, which was first held in 1904 on the farm of W.H. English. C. McTaggart had been given the task of creating a plowing match in 1901, and three years later he did succeed in organizing that, and a tradition was born. For 10 cents, you were able to get into the grounds, and for another 10 cents, you got into the exhibits. Tom Hammond would recall the first fair saying that he and his brother were given half a day off from school to attend the fair. In his recollection, he stated that the horse pole competition made use of a stone boat upon which stones were piled with each round, with Tom Jasper competing against Jack Blackwell to see who would win. It was not until 1907 when the newly named Harding Agricultural Society started holding the fair every summer. A large tent was rented and home-cooked meals were cooked under it. In 1912, a terrible hailstorm approached the fair but changed course at the last minute, saving the fair but destroying crops throughout the area. In 1914, an agricultural hall was built and a huge basket lunch was held at the fair to celebrate. In 1919, a wheat crop competition was introduced. In 1922, a news story about the fair greatly praised it, saying, The task of catering for the vast crowd was this year efficiently cared for by Mrs. Blackwell and her sons. It is not the first year she has undertaken the tremendous task which she does so well. In 1923, the success of the fair resulted in a second fair being organized. This fair, called Harding Fair B Class, would be highly successful, and by 1926 it was called Manitoba's Top Stock Fair with 321 horse entries and 352 cattle. Tough times would hit the fair during the Great Depression, and a one-year suspension in 1931 turned into a four-year suspension. It would come back, though, and in 1936, through government grants, the fair had returned and would stick around from that point. As the years went on, the fair grew, and by 1966, there were cattle sheds, pig pens, and new exhibit buildings. By this time, people such as Isaac Cormack, J.A. Bastard, and R. Cummings had helped the fair grow to be one of the premier events of the entire area. Today, despite Harding being a relatively small village, the fair is now one of the biggest one-day fairs in the entire province. Each year, the community sees roughly 20 times its population come out to the community. Harding is now the smallest Manitoba town to boast a fair, and many consider it the best one-day fair you can find, and it's a great thing to check out. Here's Reeve, Clayton, Canart. Well, the Harding
1: Fair is an event that you don't want to miss. Actually, it's a, it's a, it's a great event. I, I've actually only been to it once, but, uh, but uh, after being, I certainly will go back. Um, the Harding Fair uh, started back in 1904 um, in a pasture, actually, and, uh, you know, for for. <laughs> For a population now of the community of less than 10 people, um, they've kept the fair going for for over 115 years, and it's you know it's referred to as one of the best fair days in Manitoba. So um, the tradition in, in Kenton is always that they actually shut the businesses down at noon on on the fair days to uh, the neighboring community to uh, to be able to come over and and everyone enjoy enjoy the fair. Um, you know they have everything from cattle shows, horse shows, uh, you know grain, grasses, gardening. Uh, everything that a fair th- would have. And, uh, to be honest with you, I'm pretty sure that the previous Reeve of the municipality, uh, this was his favorite day of the year. You, you, anytime someone mentioned the Harding fair, you could see a big smile come across his face. And, you know, I think that's because it's just a true country fair really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there was certainly many opportunities for, for refreshments and socializations, uh, all in the same place. So, yeah, nice. it, and it, it's growing over the years. The, uh, the The fair board has, you know, worked very hard uh, to maintain all the existing buildings and replace and add on as needed. And you know, they have a a few uh, new barns and and they developed a, uh, you know, a really gorgeous outdoor riding arena that they use for their barrel racing and and competitions and some of their light horse classes. So it's been it's been really successful and and reading one of the things that I kind of gave me a chuckle, an article of, of somebody who'd reported on the fair, you know, back a few years ago, um, his name was Grant Moffitt. And, and uh, his uh, statement said uh, he identified Harding as a population of, of 10, including the dogs. And uh, he too comments on the volunteers working together as the basis of the success uh, that the Harding fair has enjoyed throughout the years and continues to enjoy today. And I think, you know, that's just a testament to the rural area and, you know, And and volunteers, I mean, you know, volunteers are such an important part of of these municipalities and and all of these, you know, buildings and organizations.
0: I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExplorerNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExplorerNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. <coughs> Historic Buildings and Places In an area as large as Wallace Woodworth, you're going to have some great historical places to visit. There are a lot, and I can't possibly cover them all here, but I'm going to look at several. Within the district, you will find an absolutely beautiful stone church, something that is not as common as you would think. The Brettelbane Presbyterian Church, which was built by stonemason C.B. Murphy in 1898, is located northeast of Verdun, and also features a large stone monument that lists the names of the pioneers who came to the district, along with the date of their arrival, between 1880 and 1900. If you go into Elkhorn, you can come across the Canadian Bank of Commerce building, which was built in 1912 to replace the original bank branch that had opened in 1903, and was sadly destroyed by a fire in 1912. Located on Rich Hill Avenue, it was one of 70 of the same type of building built between 1906 and 1912. And one of the few types that a bank occupied. It would serve as a location for the bank branch until 2017. The building was bought in April 2020 by a local resident and is currently going through renovations. Also on Rich Hill Avenue in Elkhorn you will find the Dominion Post Office, which is a two-story post office that was built in Elkhorn in 1935 and operates to this very day. It can be incredibly rare to find an original school from the dawn of the 20th century. Rural schools used to be everywhere, but as they shut down and students went to larger schools, those original school buildings were moved to other properties, turned into homes or demolished. While the Hargrave School District was established in 1886, the current building dates to 1909 and served as a school for 60 years until it was closed down. Located on Highway 1, it is now in use as a community centre and can be visited, Two of the principals of the school would go on to have an impact on the area and Manitoba as well. From 1933 to 1936, William John Schultz served as the principal, and he had been a principal at other schools including Mowat, Oakburn, and Oldenburg. After he retired, he would end up traveling the world for the rest of his life. From 1937 to 1939, Ralph Ernest Mays would serve as the principal of the school. This school was one of 11 that he would serve as a principal of from 1919 to 1957. And he was also a former soldier during the First World War, serving in France with the Canadian Army Medical Corps. Near to Hargrave, you will find the Knox Presbyterian Church, a beautiful stone church that was built in 1900. In 1902, the Methodist congregation built a church one mile south. And after the First World War, it was decided that the churches would unite, and that would happen in 1922 three years prior to the formal creation of the United Church of Canada. At the time, the church was called the Wallace United Church, and the church continues to stand to this day and is an excellent example of early stone church architecture from the turn of the century. Grain elevators are extremely rare these days, but you can see one, at least from a distance, as it is on a private property north of Hargrave. It was built by W.W. King for the Lake of the Woods Milling Company of Winnipeg in 1910. It would operate until 1962 when it was officially closed today it serves as a place for private grain storage if you'd like to see a grain elevator up close even though it's not as old you can go to elkhorn and see the manitoba pool elevator which was built in 1965 and operated until 2002 when it was closed today it is under private ownership but you can see it up close in the community ravine school was built in 1900 and amazingly still stands and it's one of the oldest surviving schools from that era in the area. The school was not only used for education, but it was an important social center for the area as well, and it would operate until 1964 when it closed for good and students were bused to Lenore School. The school, while abandoned, still stands on its original site, and in 1990 a cairn was erected to honor the students, pioneers, and teachers of the area. The school is located northwest of Kenton. Wood schools were very common during the early 1900s, but the River Valley School was built of stone, rare for the time, and it's existed since 1896. The school opened with 33 students and operated until 1955 when it was closed, and students were bused elsewhere. The school would go through renovations to fix it up after it had seen some decay, and today the school is surrounded by a campsite and a picnic area, and operates as a tourist site through the River Valley Historic Society. And lastly, in Elkhorn you will also find the St. Mark's Anglican Church, which was built in 1887 and features the burial site of Private William John Rogers, who was a man from the area that lost his life during the First World War. Rare to see one spot devoted to a person, his grave is located at the front of the church in a flower garden. Here's Reeve Clayton Canart. Well, there's there's quite a list of actually of historical buildings
1: uh, throughout the municipality between you know buildings and churches and, and elevators. Um, old there's uh, some still standing old schools. Um, you know we have the River Valley School, which is a beautiful little building down in the Assiniboine Valley. Of course, that's why it was was named. I believe that River Valley School, of course, where it sat. Um, you know, it was established and built in, or built in uh, 1896, sorry, and hard to believe, you know, the papers say that it was built for $700 uh, back then, <laughs> uh, I, I, but I assume at 1896, $700 was probably quite a sum of money, but uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, uh, yeah, so it was there. We have uh, over in the same area and actually uh, at the, initially the, the minister from the um, Bridalban church uh, taught, I think at the River Valley school. And uh, so the Breedalbin church is over in the area too. Um, you know, it was established and built in, in 1883 and, and served the area. We have uh, the Wallace church as well, um, built in, the 19, in 1900, and I think 1922. Um, and they actually still do uh, hold some services there. Like I think there's an annual service held in that church uh, still every year in Old Fieldstone Church. Um, there's in Elkhorn, there's a St. Mark's Anglican church uh, which was built in 1887. Um, there's the United church there as well, uh, built in, I believe, uh, 1903, um, in Kola, we have the church of Advent, which I believe is actually one of the oldest churches in Southwestern Manitoba. Um, it was built in 1884, um, for the settlers. Uh, we have the church. I, I mentioned the Anglican church, which from Kerkala, which has been moved into the museum. Um, we have, there's the Lake of the woods elevator, um, still standing. Um, to see, there's still a not quite as old elevator, but the Verdon Hargrave elevator, I think, was built in 76, uh, standing near there. Uh, there's an elevator standing in Elkhorn. Um, then there's actually a couple uh, couple or three older buildings in Elkhorn, um, built in 1935, an old brick building, which actually still is used as the post office. Um, we have our CIBC, which I refer to as a CIBC building, and um, it was built for the bank uh, CIBC back in... 1912 after another one burnt down um, and it operated as our bank actually uh, up until I think it closed in about 2017 they shut it down and uh, interesting fact about that building was actually the CIBC apparently sold the building um, in World War II when all the money went away to a, a local guy and they opened up a cafe in there. And when the war was over and um, the money came back, uh, CABC came back and bought the building from them again and started the bank back up. So, and uh, another building in town here is actually, it doesn't get talked about a whole bunch, but there's a a brick building on main street that was, uh, you know, originally, I guess, from what I can read in the history books was built as a, as a restaurant and faced the tracks. Um, And it was built back in about 1892 um, and it was a a well-used restaurant. And uh, then in 1911, the building got uh, changed to, uh, the Masonic Lodge, I guess, took it over. And somehow back then they turned the building around. Um, so <laughs> it didn't face the tracks anymore. And then it faced the, uh, it faces main street, which is a brick building. So I don't know if, you know, if it was brick at the time they turned it or if they bricked it, you know, after Ooh. it, after it moved, but <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. And then we have, uh, you know, a few schools, uh, there's the Hargrave school, I guess, that, uh, is, is still um, standing in Hargrave and it was a, a one-story brick school and and it's used for, for events uh, here and there now still. Um, we used to have the Ross School which was a real standout um, often referred to actually as the Two Creek School but it was a real standout uh, building in, in the municipality because it was kind of perched up on a hill and as you drove down the highway you could see it from from, from miles around, but uh, unfortunately uh, it was destroyed by arson, uh, mm. you know, a few years back. So that was, that was sad to lose. Um, yeah. And then there's, uh, I guess we have one other thing that's kind of interesting is uh, the old scallion farm. It's north of Verdon, but it was, I think, from my understanding, some of the original homesteaders and it's the house is starting to really to fall down, but there's an old uh, stone granary and stuff there. It's on private land, but you can see it from the road and it's, yeah. So, so there's certainly lots of lots of different things to tour and see.
0: notable residents Mary Carter spent part of her early life in Elkhorn before moving to Saskatoon in nineteen thirty eight and then studying law at the University of Saskatchewan. called to the bar in nineteen forty eight she opened up a law practice and was named a provincial magistrate in nineteen sixty becoming only the second female appointed to the position in Saskatchewan. In 1978, she was elevated to the Saskatchewan District Court, where she worked developing the Unified Family Court. In 1981, she became a judge at the Court of the Queen's Bench of Saskatchewan, serving until 1998, and she would pass away on October 1, 2010. Travis Sanheim was born in Elkhorn on March 29, 1996, and would find his way to the NHL after he was drafted 17th overall in 2014 by the Philadelphia Flyers. He would score his first goal in only his 28th game, and made his debut in the Stanley Cup playoffs in 2018. In 2019, he signed a two-year $6.5 million contract with the Flyers, and prior to playing in the NHL, he represented Canada West in the 2013 World Under-17 Hockey Challenge and led Canada to a bronze at the 2014 IIHF World Under-18 Championship, where he led all defensemen in points and was named one of Canada's top three players in the tournament and the tournament's best defenseman. In all, he has 70 points in 200 games in the NHL. John W. Thompson was born in Elkhorn on July 18, 1908, and after attending the University of Manitoba to earn a law degree, he came back to his hometown to set up a law practice. While in Elkhorn, he became heavily involved in politics, serving as a municipal councillor from 1933 to 1939, and then turned his attention to federal politics, losing in the 1940 federal election. After serving from 1942 to 1945 in the Royal Canadian Air Force, Thompson would come back to Elkhorn and turn to local politics once again. He served as a school trustee from 1945 to 1947. In 1953, John was elected to the Manitoba Legislature and would serve for the next decade, including as the Minister of Public Works, Minister of Municipal Affairs, and the Labor Minister for the province. After resigning on October 24, 1962, Thompson became a county court judge and served the judicial district of the area for 20 years until his death on December 15, 1986. Here's Reeve, Clayton, Canart.
1: but uh, you know the first thing that probably comes to mind is really the events that we we host each year i mean you know unfortunately this year with 2020 we've had some unprecedented uh, cancellations in those events uh, so we didn't see many of them happen this year but uh, you know in, in time they'll come back and we certainly will welcome visitors to come, come and check them out um, you know some of the fir- first things i would think of that you know would be the elkhorn fair i guess is one that's been you know going since 1883 in Elkhorn, um, certainly worth attending. Um, we have the Harding Fair um, in Harding that has been going on since 1904. Uh, you know, some of the things I really enjoy about the area is uh, or it's our Canada Day celebrations. Um, you know, we have uh, Canada Day celebrations in, in Canton. Starts the day with a pancake breakfast. Uh, there's usually a car rally. You know, followed by different events and music and stuff in in town and at, at the Canton Dam, um, in Elkhorn. Similar start, you know, of course a pancake breakfast is a good way to start any day um, that gets followed up by a, a, a great parade we have in the community um, with a lot of the vehicles coming from our museum. Um, and then, you know, in the last few years, we've actually, after the parade, there's been, a, you know, a threshing um, show and steam steam engine um, stuff with, uh, you know, of course, beer gardens and, and some socializing. Um, you know, we we have other events throughout the summer as well. Like the Elks uh, hosts a Western Weekend with chariot and chuck wagon races. Uh, there's a yoga festival usually held at Eternal Springs. We have a motocross track now uh, in in the municipality that holds races, provincial 3D archery shoots, um, barrel racing events, uh, trap shooting, Wolverine Days, and uh, you know, in the winter you certainly have the the rinks as the heartbeat of your communities, hosting uh, hockey and and figure skating and and then, you know, the curling rings holding their bond spills as well. Um, there's a, a well-known bond spiel in the small community of Lenore that happens uh, every year. So if you're ever uh, looking for a good time in the middle of winter, it's uh, certainly a bond spiel worth attending. I guess I'd say really you can expect the unexpected. You know, you you know you might think that just being on the number one highway, we're just kind of a place to to cruise through and stop for gas as you need. But um you know, as all the things I've mentioned, if you get off the beaten path, you're going to find some some really interesting things. And, you know, on top of all the historical attractions, uh, you're certainly going to receive a warm welcome, great hospitality, you know, fantastic local small town businesses and, and endless um, country roads. You know, we have the beauty of the Sintemune Valley here and, you know, and all the nature and, and surrounding agri- agriculture as well. So, you know, <clears throat> we have great restaurants in our communities of Cola, you know, Canton and Elkhorn, um, you know. I guess, south, southwest of uh, Elkhorn, we have the Westwood Ranch, or and it's, I guess it's straight south of Cracalla, really. Um, and it's a greenhouse and zoo. Um, it's really the only place in rural Manitoba you're going to see zebras, uh, lemurs, and wallaroos. Um, and if you stop in there, be sure to have a visit with the owner, Mark, because if you'd like some humor, um, although sometimes a little maybe inappropriate, uh, <laughs> he sure loves to have a good laugh. So. <clears throat> and in Elkhorn, we have uh, a unique uh, little ladies boutique kind of um, store and it's called the trendy store with the pink door we have some hair and nail salons uh, you know a quaint little historic another building i didn't mention is the, the roseberry inn now that that operates as a bed and breakfast um, as you wake your way i guess kenton way you'll find uh, another great little restaurant in the, in the briarwood uh, creek cafe and then they've got a small town uh, uh, woodworth dodge dealership which is a great little place to stop if you're looking for a vehicle Um, you know and as long along with all the historic sites you know there's there's many places and and beautiful river uh, valley views places to stop for picnics hikes kayaks swims Um, so there's certainly lots to do
0: i hope you enjoyed that look at the area of wallace woodworth and if you did please leave a rating and review you can reach me at craig at canada ehx.com you can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to CanadaEHX.com And again, you can support the podcast by going to Patreon. Just go to Patreon.com CanadaEHX. Just like all of these wonderful people have. Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke S, Vic Hedges, JP Bear. Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.